Good morning again, and uh, good to see everybody out today. A couple things uh, catch you up on. One of them is that our worship, our student did our worship this morning, so we appreciate them. Let's give them a big hand. Um, I know when I was that age, there's no way. Number one, I wasn't talented, and number two, I would never have done it. Uh, but they're just so um, amazing to get up there and do that. So we, we appreciate that so much and want to encourage them and, uh, in, in, in their ministry. Uh, secondly, I did want to mention that uh, Young Life, we do host Young Life uh, over our Journey Provisions building. They have an upstairs room that uh, we allow them to meet in. And so uh, we have a pretty good partnership with them as well as a lot of our giving goes to that work and ministry there too. So uh, there, we're partnered with them. And the third thing, uh, some of you have asked, yes, my grandson is pretty amazing. Uh, he is, uh, he was a big baby, but he's still tiny. You know, you kind of forget uh, even 10 pounds is, or nine pounds is, is little, uh, but he's, he's pretty amazing. So we did have a great time with him. I enjoyed that. And I know Zach did an awesome job last week while I was gone. So uh, that, that's pretty cool. Well, today we're going to go a little different direction like we talked about. And I've got a question for you. Uh, of all the Bible characters, which one do you identify with most? What, what Bible character do you identify with? Now, if you say Jesus, I know you're lying. So I'm not even going to count that at all, right? Um, but but what, about, what about some of the Bible characters? What about Job? You know, Job was known for his patience, right? Are, do you identify with Job in the way uh, that maybe you've gone through some hard times in life and, you know, and you don't understand, but you, you try to keep your faith? Or, or maybe David. David's one of my favorite. Uh, King David in the Old Testament, just a strong man, but he had some weaknesses in his life. Maybe you identify with him. Um, I think one of the people uh, that many of us identify with is the uh, Apostle Peter, He's one of the easiest people in the Bible to identify with. I mean, some of the characters in the Bible seem like they're so super holy and perfect that nobody could possibly be like that. I mean, think about Mary, the mother of Jesus. We don't ever see any sin or weakness seemingly in her life. We know she wasn't perfect, but, uh, but Mary just seems like a rock. And, and then we think about Daniel in the Old Testament. What a man of prayer and faith and leader, never wavered at all. Think about Stephen, you know, the first biblical uh, martyr, Christian martyr. And we think about people like that and we say, wow, I don't think I could ever identify with, a, with an individual like that. But now Peter seems like he's a guy that I might be able to understand a little bit. And Peter lived a life, kind of a, what we're going to call an odd life, uh, odd life, good God, we, it's the name of this series. But his life uh, was kind of a life of contrast. I mean, it was, he was so unpredictable. He was hot and cold one minute, the, the next. He was volatile. He was impulsive. His life would make a pretty good reality show, just kind of following him, uh, being a fly on the wall, seeing what Peter was up to all the time, always in the wrong place at the wrong time, always saying the wrong thing at the wrong moment, it seemed like. His life was kind of a roller coaster. And on, on Peter's worst days, I mean, he was uh, he bossing Jesus around, telling Jesus what he was and wasn't going to do. And one time he even denied, three times denied, even knowing who Jesus was, um, he... Um, was called Satan by Jesus at one point. Uh, he cut a guy's ear off when Jesus was trying to give his life for our sins in the middle of all that mess. And he could be a little racist a little bit. I mean, what a guy. That's his worst days. But on his best days, he was Jesus' right-hand man. He was one of the inner circle, of the, one of the three that Jesus met with whenever he got together kind of alone in his moments of, uh, of worship. 
He was a recognized leader of the 12 apostles. We always think about Peter being first in line. He was the first one to confess that Jesus is the son of God. He made that declaration and we still repeat that today. Uh, he filled the leadership void whenever Jesus went back to heaven. He just stepped right in, it seems like, and took over. He wrote two books of the Bible. He provided the background for a book on the life of Christ, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And he was martyred for refusing to deny who Jesus was later on. In fact, he, was even, he even asked his killers uh, to, to turn his cross upside down because he did not want to die and wasn't worthy to die in the same way that Jesus did. So those were some of the best days of Peter. You know, he had the good, he had the bad, and he was uh, on his journey and he was progressing. And uh, all of these good things came after Peter had been in the presence of Jesus for some time. But in Peter, we see it kind of a run-of-the-mill kind of Christian person, you know, who's hot and cold, who's struggling, someone who loves Jesus, someone who's very human, very weak at times, someone who takes two steps forward and one step back oftentimes, never ever perfect, but always moving along in their spiritual journey. And I think that's why many of us can probably identify with Peter, because we think, you know what, if Peter, if there's hope for Peter, there's hope for me. I mean, if, if Peter can pull it out and he can be used by Jesus and he can be um, remembered as a faithful follower, then I, then I think maybe I can do that as well. And that's why we can identify with him. And throughout this study, we're going to be studying uh, one of the books that Peter wrote. Uh, he wrote two books, First and Second Peter, near the end of the New Testament. They're basically in the form of letters to believers. They were written to, and we'll talk about who they were written to in a moment, but both to people in his day and also to us today. This is how we look at the Bible. The Bible is written, especially the, the epistles, the letters, the latter part of the New Testament, were written to individuals or churches, groups of churches. They have the names oftentimes of the people they were written to or who wrote them. And, um, but they were written to a church and they were to be dispersed and discussed and listened to and studied. And today we have the same thing. We believe that these words were not just the words of an individual, but instead that they're inspired word of God. And I think that the book of first Peter is very relevant to us today because Peter's writing to the church in a very similar time in which we're living today, in a culture that is not really a Christian culture and environment. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter says that he is actually writing this book from the city of Babylon. Now, I don't know if that rings a bell, what Babylon was, but in the Old Testament, Babylon was a pagan city. It was the capital of Nebuchadnezzar when he had his empire in Old Testament days. I mentioned Daniel a few moments ago. During the days of Daniel, the Jewish people were led into Babylonian captivity. They were taken from their country and led as exiles into Babylon for 70 years where they lived under the authority and the, the leadership of, uh, of the um, people of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar uh, Empire. And, and so it was a, known as a horrible pagan city. But basically, during Peter's day, it was also a, a ruins. It was a, not, a, not a great city anymore because it had fallen several times. So it probably wasn't ancient Babylon, Babylon that Peter was writing from. So where was he writing? In the New Testament, Babylon was the nickname for the city of Rome. 
It was kind of a, a place, a God-forsaken place that was synonymous with any God-forsaken place would be called Babylon. So when, when Paul, or excuse me, when Peter says, I'm writing from Babylon, basically he's saying, I'm writing from the city of Rome. Most people assume that to be true. So let's describe what Rome looked like in the first century. Rome had the world's strongest economy. It was the world's most powerful country, had a powerful military. But unfortunately, Rome was in the middle of self-destruction. It was falling apart internally, like most nations uh, do fall. It was divided down the middle politically, and Christians were in the middle, and they were pressured to choose a side. Choose a side to belong to, because it was divided. The issues of the day were the economy, public health, justice, government overreach, um, policing, and political corruption. That sound familiar at all? <laughs> that sound like today? It, it was morally bankrupt. I mean, Rome was 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 Babylon. It was a pagan city. Everyone insisted they were right, and that uh, anything and everything was acceptable. That was the world that Peter was writing in. That's why it's so relevant to us today. That's why this book is going to be a great study for us, because we're going to discover how to live in, a, in that kind of culture. Now, by this time, Peter is a seasoned Christian statesman. He's kind of gotten past that immaturity of his youth, and he's addressing the pressures of the day, and he advises the church about how to live in times such as this, how to live in difficult times. And so it's relevant for them and for us as well. And he states his purpose for writing this, uh, this book in chapter five. He said, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So Peter says, I'm writing this to encourage you. The word encourage means to put courage in you. Pretty simple. To put courage in you. I want to put courage in you. So when you read the Bible, you ought to be encouraged to live a difficult, in difficult times and to stand firm even though there are hardships all around you. So it was written from Babylon. It was written by Peter. The date of writing was somewhere around A.D. 63 or 65, somewhere in that time period there. Kind of interesting, obviously about 30 years after Jesus' uh, death when he'd gone back into heaven. And uh, during this time, a lot was going on in the Christian world, a lot of persecution. The apostle Paul, who was a contemporary of Peter, was martyred in Rome about this time. Some say about 65 AD. But Peter doesn't mention that in the letter. So probably Paul's death came after he wrote this letter. That would be a big event that Peter probably would have mentioned if, uh, if it already happened. It was a time of great persecution. It was a time the church was under a great deal of pressure and believers uh, were challenged to live in that kind of world. The ruler at the time was a man named Nero. I bet you've heard of Nero. Nero was the um, uh, emperor of Rome. And uh, in 64 AD, Rome had a, a big fire. And a, a fire broke out, it burned for five days, destroyed most of the city of Rome during that time, and everybody blamed Nero. You probably heard people say that Nero was fiddling while Rome was burning, right? Well, actually, Nero didn't set the fire. He was, in a, he was out of town, uh, but he was given uh, credit for it. And he, instead of taking the responsibility as the leader, he blamed it on Christians, and so during that time, persecution flared up uh, against Christians, and it's likely that both Peter and Paul were killed sometimes during, sometime during this time in or around Rome. 
Now, commentators usually agree that the persecution was due more, it was due more to um, unofficial harassment than it was to official law. In other words, they didn't say all Christians have to be persecuted, all Christians have to be uh, put to death or arrested or anything like that. But instead, it was kind of unofficial. It was like the people of the city got ticked off at everybody and the Christians kind of got the brunt of the whole thing. And this is oftentimes how persecution takes place around the world, even today, uh, that people don't like something and they find a group to blame it on. And because we have Christian values that are different from the rest of the world, then they kind of lash out at believers. Uh, A few weeks ago, Richie Phillips got up and talked to us about our mission partners in India, Jay Henry and his son-in-law, Ernest, uh, with Bethlehem Christian Ministries. And they're going through that very thing right now in India. Because while the the president or dictator of India uh, does not like Christians, they haven't totally shut them down, but there are groups of people, Hindu and Muslim, who are attacking Christians, and they're kind of catching the brunt of everything. So this is how persecution often happens, and, and we see it here in our own country in subtle ways, that Christians catch the brunt of things because we don't agree with the culture that we're living in, uh, that we're living around. So Peter's concern about all of this was what we today are, are called tolerance and diversity and inclusion and a religious pluralism that discriminates against Christians in a way that is not tolerant, not diverse, not inclusive, and really is Christian persecution or religious persecution. So we are living in days that are similar to the days that that Peter wrote in. And Peter begins this letter with these words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, if you notice that list of people, you say, well, that sounds familiar if you are familiar with Acts chapter 2, to the list of people who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. If you go back and look at that, there's a whole list of people, Jewish people who didn't always live in Jerusalem, scattered all over the world, they had come to Jerusalem to worship and celebrate the Feast of Pentecost from some of these places. The lists are very similar. They had probably been there when the church began, what Acts 2 calls visitors from Rome, uh, Jews, and converts to Judaism. And they heard the gospel, the first gospel sermon there, and they believed in Jesus Christ. Many of them were probably baptized because 3,000 people were that day. And then they took their new faith back with them to Rome and all the other places that they'd been living in. So they were scattered all over uh, this, this certain area, an area that we now call Turkey. Uh, but they were scattered all over that area. And their commitment to Jesus Christ was impacting their lives dramatically. And they were not like the pagan culture around them. And they were very unpopular in some settings. You know, Jesus said that we're to be the light and darkness, the light and darkness. And here's the thing about darkness. Darkness does not like to be disturbed. Darkness does not like to be exposed because what people do in the darkness, they don't want anybody to know about it. And when when the light shines in, it, it embarrasses them, it shames them. And it pushes back, and that's what the world does today. The believers didn't worship the gods of that culture. 
And so they were viewed as being unpatriotic. These are our national gods. You're not worshiping our gods, you're unpatriotic. There were trade guilds and unions that were dedicated to gods and goddesses. So when Christians refused to participate, then they were viewed as unprofessional. They were demoted or perhaps even terminated because Christian values didn't fit in their increasingly secular culture. Do we not see that today? Parent, um, uh, teachers who are sometimes uh, alienated from their union because they don't go with the union values or the union gods, if you want to call them that. Families are divided over these pagan rituals. They're not all going to participate in these things. And of course, Christians were viewed as the bad guys in all these cases. So this is what was going on in that time. And it's easy for us to see the similar situations in our own world because the threat to Peter that Peter's issues to us is one that we face today. Here's the threat is that Christians might fold under trial, that we might give in to the pressure of the world around us. And doesn't that happen? Certain levels of persecution have always existed for Christians. The Apostle Paul said, indeed, all of us who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you say, well, I don't have any persecution in my life, not feel no pressure at all. It may well be that you're not faithfully trying to live a godly life in Jesus Christ because you should be feeling some pressure. In an increasingly secular world, you should be feeling the pressure that's going on around you. Shortly after Peter wrote this letter, Nero burned Christians, literally, alive as torches at his parties. He would cover them in tar and then set them on fire. He would throw them to lions in arenas to be uh, uh, killed by lions, and they would be uh, killed by gladiators, or they would be torn apart, all four limbs with four horses driven in different directions. So he was horrible. But you know, most of the persecution faced by Christians in that day is the kind that Peter addresses in the letter. And so that's why it's relevant to us today. There's always been persecution. There's sometimes been these horrible persecution, imprisonment, and death. But normally the persecution in that day and what was common was what we face today, the pressure and the, maybe the fact that we're marginalized in some arenas as being odd or unusual or weirdos who offend other people because we don't want to go along with the culture. That's kind of what persecution has been like, except for some of these extreme cases all the way down through time. And so Christians would suffer same shame and accusations and, and family rejection and discrimination and mockery and, and um, vicious rumors about them and slander and harassment and abuse and economic persecution and rejection and even mob violence. You know, a modern example of this might be a college student who are mocked by the professors and everybody else in the class for being Christians, Bible-believing Christians, and and maybe even get their grades reduced because they're just seen in disfavor by, by the administration. So the pressure was real in that day, and the temperature uh, and the temptation to compromise was very real as well, and a lot of people did. There were maybe four ways that people compromised. Some of them were enticed by the liberal uh, route of cutting out or um, explaining away the parts of truth that the culture was criticizing. In other words, there are certain areas that the culture doesn't like, so let's just kind of soften those things and let's kind of explain those things away. In, this, in our day, this would be the pastors in liberal denominations who endorse all religions, all spirituality, officiate marriages between any 
genders, anybody who wants to get married, tolerance, pluralism, and open mind. That's one route that people make. Just give in and let the culture rule. Other people were compelled to privatize their faith. In other words, become a closet Christian. Just kind of keep your mouth shut, keep your head down, just do what you're supposed to do, but don't let anybody know that you're really a believer. Thirdly, there were others who were considered abandoning their faith altogether. I mean, they were tired of being marginalized. They're tired of being the butt of jokes and, and weary of the social intimidation, especially those who were young or maybe those who had social positions they had to uphold or they had a lifestyle to fund, you know, so there's a lot of reasons not to do this. You know, I think uh, about, and I have friends that are going through this very thing, are struggling uh, because their uh, minister friends whose pensions are tied up in denominations that have lost their way completely. And it becomes a very difficult thing for some of them to figure out. But there's still others, uh, fourthly, were attracted to the fighting position uh, of religious fundamentalism. In other words, we're gonna go, we're gonna go on the attack. Uh, we're gonna declare jihad for Jesus. We're going out there and we're gonna stand for what we believe. We're not taking this anymore. So, so there are four ways that, that people would respond to the kind of pressure and you know what? They're really a part of our world today because these are ways that Christians do react or think about reacting even today when we deal with this kind of persecution. Here's the problem. None of these approaches work. None of them are the right approach. None of them are what we ought to do. And they're not what God's calling us to do. In fact, all of them will eventually pull us away from the truth of the gospel. Some of the ways that we react when we're under pressure actually betray what we say we believe. And so we need to find a strategy, a good way to look at this. And that's basically what the Apostle Peter is going to give us today. He's going to give us, uh, throughout this study, as we look at this book, he's going to give us a strategy to live in this kind of world and culture that we live in today. And part of that is to understand who and where we are. Who and where we are. This is important to understand because a lot of people don't get this. Did you notice what Paul, what excuse me, Peter calls them and what he calls us? He called them elect exiles. Elect exiles. It's kind of an interesting turn of words there. So let's break it down a little bit. First of all, we are elect. We are elect because we are chosen. God chose us. God knows everything. God chose us to be his people. So we are blessed. We are elect. Some of us um, were that kid that never got chosen for anything. You know, we weren't very talented in sports or, you know, any, anything. And so we're the kid that everybody passes over and they pick everybody else and somebody got stuck with us on their team. Maybe you're that kid, you know, a lot of us seem like we were. We never got chosen. Well, God chose you. He picked you to be on his team. He chose you. You know, we have two adopted kids. Our two oldest kids are adopted. And we tell them from day one, uh, you are chosen. We chose you. We picked you. And we used to say, you know what? Everybody else kind of gets stuck with the kid they have. But we chose you to be our kid. <laughs> we had to, had to do it differently when our two natural born kids came along. Um, but, um, but we told them that because we wanted them to know they were special and they were chosen. You need to know that you are special. God chose you. He picked you to be his child. So you are elect and we belong to him. And one day we're going to live with him forever in his family, in his house. So there's a lot for us to look forward to. But here's the second word that he mentions here. And that is the word exile. 
You are an exile. Now, an exile is someone who is absent from their home or country for some reason, usually because they're kind of, you know, assigned to go or they're kind of pushed out in some way. But you are an exile. You're living in a foreign country where you don't belong. And I will tell you that, that Americans, we're exiles in our world. Uh, Christians, we're exiled in America today. For one thing, we're exiled here, but we're exiled in this whole earth you know, in this whole earth. This is probably one of the best places to live uh, in a lot of ways, but we are exiles in America. We're living a post-Christian culture. When some of us were kids, the world seemed much different. You know, Christians were admired and respected and the church, you know, was important, but now it seems like it's been pushed aside, but we are in exile. And that's one reason why we are tempted to compromise and privatize our faith or abandon our faith or go on the defense like I described a few moments ago because we don't feel like we're comfortable here. We don't, we don't feel that this doesn't feel like home because it's not home. Have you ever felt like you just didn't belong sometime in this world and the world's going crazy all around you? That's because we are, you're an exile in a foreign country. It doesn't feel like home because it isn't home. In other places, the Bible calls us aliens in a foreign country or foreigners or strangers, other words. And and when you're away from home, you just want to go home. You just want to go home. But while we're here, we have an assignment. We've been placed here. It's not by accident that we're here. We are elected by God to be his children, but we're exiled to this world. But we shouldn't waste our time and we shouldn't do any of the other things I talked about. Uh, We have a calling And we need to be confident and faithful in the calling that we have here. Here's what Peter goes on to say, that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So we have the power of the Godhead, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit on our team. We have power. We're not powerless. We're not alone We have God's presence in our life. And Peter says, knowing that, you need grace and peace to live in this world and live up to the calling that you have. And then he gives them a reminder of what they have. He says, praise be to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. In this great great mercy, he has given us new birth in a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So look at, look at that, some things, in, some phrases in there. We have great mercy from God. We have a new birth. We're born again. We have a living hope. We have an inheritance that can never perish. We have this waiting for us out there. We are shielded by God's power. I'll be with you always, Jesus said. Salvation will be revealed in the last time. Those are yours. Those are your blessings. Sometimes we cry, you know, complain and gripe, but we often don't count our blessings. Read that scripture again sometime and think of the blessing that God has given us and the calling that we had to fulfill that. We're not alone. We're not abandoned in our exile. He is with us because we are his children. So how do we respond to all this? It says, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. 
These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though some of you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Notice what he says we need to do. We need to rejoice. We don't need to whine, complain, gripe, talk about how things used to be, how bad we got it. You don't see any of that, do you? What you see is rejoice in these days because it's only going to last for a little while. Maybe your lifetime, but that's a little while compared to eternity, all right? We have to have the long view. We have to look down the road to what God has for us, never forgetting who we are and knowing that he's with us all along the way and knowing the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are guiding us and we are being sanctified. We're gonna talk about that next week a little bit, but we are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Life has a lot of griefs and trials. No doubt about it. We, we have the normal things of life besides the pressure of the world. We have death, but we have isolation and depression and anger and rage and, um, and health issues and relationship issues and addictions and fear and world crisis just keep coming at us all the time and, and all the different issues and problems of life. But notice why they come. Notice why these things come. God, God didn't say, I'm going to put you in a setting where everything will be perfect. He doesn't say that. He says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. These things have come so that your faith will be proven to be genuine. So our, our burdens that we have here are for us to receive the blessings of God. There is a purpose for these things that we have to go through. And there are four things that Peter tells us to remember here. Number one, your test is for your testimony. How many of us need to hear that sometime, that your test that you're going through is for your testimony. The more you struggle, the greater your testimony and the greater glory goes to God. You know, I have a, I have a friend and she and her family are going through a lot of difficult times. And she told me this express thing just a few weeks ago. She said, the more that happens for us, the stronger and greater our testimony is going to be. Amen. And some of the things they're dealing with, they're just overwhelming, health issues and, and everything else, just overwhelming. And it's oftentimes hard for us to remember when we're tempted and tested, but the more we are saved from and the more we are carried through, the greater our testimony will be. And we need to use that testimony. Our test is for our testimony. Secondly, when people judge you, don't worry because Jesus will one day judge them and he will vindicate you. Amen. We want to be vindicated. We want to be released. We want to be affirmed. We want to be right, right now, but it probably isn't always going to happen. Amen. But one day Jesus will judge them. First Peter chapter four, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Remember that those who attack you, who marginalize you, who minimize you will one day have to stand before the judge of the universe and explain their lives, just like you will, by the way. You and I, let's don't get too high and mighty about that because we're all going to have to stand there. But the people that we struggle with will stand there and they must explain how they treated the gospel, how they treated believers, how they treated the church. And as hard as it is sometimes for us, we have to let God deal with them. 
Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We don't take vengeance. We don't attack. We let God deal with them. Here's a third thing. Don't treat them like they treat you. Treat them as he treats you. Do not treat them the way they treat you. First Peter chapter three. Again, all this wisdom comes from first Peter we're looking at. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an account to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. That's how we respond to the world. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. The Bible speaks a lot about how we treat people who treat us poorly. And one of the things it says is that we are to uh, heap coals, burning coals on their head. That doesn't mean we pile them fire on top, but it means that we, we treat them so well that they're ashamed of themselves, that they're ashamed they treated us that way. You know, as hard as it may be to remember sometimes, these people have souls as well. And at some moment, they have to have some time of looking at how they treat people. If not now, they will in the future. Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So our response needs to be one of love and response, not treating them like they treat us, but treating them like he treats us. And here's the last thing, that this earth is as close to hell as you're ever going to get. So just keep on until you get home. When things seem bad, remember that for the believer, the faithful believer, this earth, what we have now is the closest we're ever going to get to hell. But hell's going to be a lot worse than this, all right? Heaven's going to be so much better that it doesn't even, there's no comparison. But let's keep thinking about going home. We're in exile, but we are selected. We are elected. We are chosen, and home is there. And home, it has a ring to it. It has a ring to it. You know, it doesn't matter where we go and how far we travel. Home is where we want to get back to. Whether you're gone for a week, a month, or a few hours, we just want to go home. And God has put in us, as his children, that desire to be with him and to be at home. And so we have to kind of look past the moment and what's going on and remember that home awaits us. We just have to be faithful. We have to continue, you know, doing what our calling is doing and and not just to survive, but thrive in this world so that the message of the gospel is carried forth so that we, you know, live out a faithful testimony through our struggles and that we one day will go home. And for the believer, when we leave this world behind, it's a release and a relief to be out of exile, to be at home, at home with the Father. And I love what the Bible gives us this picture of a faithful believer coming home and receiving the applause of heaven, the recognition of saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things, enter into the joy of your master. That's the hope that we have, and it makes everything here worth it. Hope you're encouraged by these words. Be encouraged by these words. You know, I think it's important that all of us remember these things, but also that we respond in a way that keeps us in the relationship with the Lord or brings us into that. If you've never given your life to Christ, I'd love to talk to you about that. If you are a believer and you just want somebody to pray with you or whatever it may be, I'm going to be up front. Tony's going to step up. We'll have opportunity for you to come and just share uh, with a believer who, who can love on you and pray for you if you're going through a tough time. 
Maybe that's what you need today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can be encouraged by these things. God, you would put courage in us and faith and hope that goes beyond this world that we live in today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the apostle Peter who knew what it was like to be in exile, to be persecuted, who would later be put to death. And he probably knew that was coming, Lord, but he wrote these words of hope and he says and tells us to rejoice find an inexpressible joy in these things. And Lord, we can only do that because our joy is in Jesus. So Lord, I pray you'll be with us now as we worship. I pray you'll be with those who are here uh, who maybe don't know you, God, who have not crossed that line of faith, or Lord, maybe those who are believers that just need someone to encourage them and love on them this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's rise and worship him in joy.